we've entered into a fundamentally different stage of the U.S.-China relationship. Competition is expanding, intensifying, and diversifying. Competition is full spectrum. It's on security, economics, technology, and increasingly ideology. But of course, amid that, we have deep interdependence. And the thing about interdependence is that it's not just economic interdependence. It's also technological interdependence, it's ecological interdependence, and because of the fact that we're both nuclear powers, there's interdependence of strategic stability. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Evan Medeiros. Evan is the Penner Family Chair in Asia Studies at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and the Kling Family Distinguished Fellow in U.S.-China Studies. He previously served for six years on the staff of the National Security Council as Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia, and then a Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Asia. He was actively involved in all aspects of U.S.-China relations for six years, including several U.S.-China summits. Evan also advises multinational companies in his role as a senior advisor with the Asia Group. Prior to joining the White House, Evan worked for seven years as a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. From 2007 to 2008, he worked with me on the U.S.-China Strategic Economic Dialogue at the Treasury Department. Evan, welcome to the podcast. You're a clear and incisive thinker and a real expert when it comes to U.S.-China relations. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. And let's start with the early years. Where did you grow up? Tell us a bit about some of your formative experiences and early mentors. Well, thanks, Hank. It's great to be here. You know, we work together in the late 2000s, when I was at the, I went to the Treasury Department for a year, and I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity that you gave me. It was my first real stint in the U.S. government, and shaped a lot of sort of my perspectives and subsequent experiences. So many, many thanks for that, Hank. And I wanted to let you know that it's interesting because I think we got some important things done with, with the Strategic Economic Dialogue, and Treasury is a terrific place, isn't it? Yeah. So in terms of the early years, Hank, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. I come from a big family. I've got six sisters. My dad was a doctor and a professor at Brown. My mom was a nurse. And, you know, in terms of sort of early experiences, uh, my parents used to travel a lot internationally, which, you know, back in the 70s and 80s wasn't that common for sort of middle-class families and certainly middle-class families in Rhode Island. So I immediately through their experience, was interested in the world, more so than my peers in uh, middle school or high school. And probably one of the most early formative experiences for me was taking a class at Brown University when I was a senior in high school. I took a class on American foreign and national security policy and read a bunch of books that really opened my aperture on the U.S. foreign policy establishment and sort of what was possible. Two books in particular were really influential for me. One was The Wizards of Armageddon by Fred Kaplan about the great thinkers behind U.S. nuclear strategy. And the other one was called The Wise Men by Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas about, you know, the, basically the 
diplomats and financiers that created effectively the post-World War II era. And that sort of shaped my view about this idea that number one, that people with real substantive expertise and experience are needed in these critical policy positions. And number two, this idea of sort of moving in and out of government as something that was unique to the American system. And while it probably sounds obvious to say that now in 2022, you know, in 1987 or 88, when you're living in Providence, Rhode Island, not a, uh, an obvious thing for, you know, somebody at classical high school to, to appreciate. Yeah, I sure didn't appreciate that until much, much later in my career, how unique our system is in, in terms of allowing people to move in and out and the big difference that makes. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about how your career unfolded. You went on. It's very interesting. You, you earned your PhD in international relations at the London School of Economics. So talk a bit about how it unfolded, how you got interested in China, and then what led you to make the jump from academia to, to government service? So my interest in China emerged from my interest in international security affairs. I was a very active and competitive debater in high school. Many of the topics were international topics, and this was the waning days of the Cold War. So for me, I was very interested in you know arms control, especially at the end of the Reagan administration. And so, of course, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of the New World Order was this fascinating period that allowed me to become even more interested or explore my interest in global politics. I came to China to be a research assistant at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. They have a program called the Junior Fellowship that I applied for and got. And I worked for a senior associate who was an expert on global proliferation developments. And because there was no Asia program at that time, and he had me working on book chapters and projects related to China and North Korea. And both of them I found incredibly fascinating. But when it came to China, it was basically next to impossible to find any good information on Chinese national security or military affairs. I mean, there were literally a handful of people that were interested in those topics. And I met one young scholar at the time named Bates Gill, who subsequently become a good friend. And Bates sort of said, hey, why don't you try and mix your functional interest in international security affairs with your regional interest in China? And you need to go and you need to learn Chinese, you need to learn more about China. But that could be a really good combination. And that intuitively made an enormous amount of sense to me. So when I went to grad school, first to Cambridge, then SOAS, then the LSE, I just really dug in, tried to learn as much about Chinese history, Chinese economics, Chinese politics, foreign and defense policy as possible. And so, you know, as I mentioned, because I was aware of this unique aspect of the U.S. system, when I went to go get a PhD, it was about getting real substantive expertise, good methodological training. But I always thought of, I had the aspiration to be an applied social scientist right? Take the best of what a PhD program has to offer, but apply it to policy problems. So, you know, after my PhD, my first job was at the Rand Corporation, which is sort of by definition focused on applied social science. It takes PhDs and gives them real world problems because our contracts at the time were mostly from U U.S. government agencies. So it was really less of a jump from academia to government and sort of more of a hop. And of course, midway through my tenure at Rand, 
I got a fellowship from the Council on Foreign Relations and I said, I wanna to go to the Treasury Department because the most exciting new thing that's happening in the US-China relationship is Hank Paulson's strategic and economic dialogue. And that was, you know, for me professionally, it was a early part of my interest in economics and political economy, because if there's one thing that becomes very obvious when you study China, is that if you don't understand economics and economic policy making, even at a basic level, you really can't understand China's strategic direction. Absolutely. That is the lens through which they view the world. And it's essential. Interesting, Evan, to hear you talk about your career. Because many people uh, don't have their career unfold in such a logical, clear way with the, you know, the progression that you saw and envisioned and then actually may come about. So I, I really applaud you for that. But the thing that you did that anyone who's ever been, that I know that's been successful has done, is you really dug down and made sure you learned a lot. You have fundamentals. People make a mistake often saying, I want to do X, whatever it is, and then get there right away, as opposed to starting with the basics and making sure you've got those fundamentals. And so you nailed that, and it really played out in your career. But what I want to do now is jump right in to U.S., China, and what's going on geopolitically. So back in March, you wrote that the war in Ukraine could spark the most consequential shift in geopolitics since the end of the Cold War, if not the Second World War, and that China was driving this potential shift. Now explain what you meant. How has a war in Ukraine impacted the global order? And more specifically, what impact has it had on U.S.-China relations? So Hank, as I wrote in the FT several months ago, the reason why I think the war in Ukraine is so consequential is because it, as a singular event, affected the most basic aspects of international politics, which is number one, I think the distribution of power globally. And number two, perhaps more immediately, is geopolitical alignments among the power centers in the world. And the war basically accelerated a series of existing geopolitical alignments and geopolitical shifts. It, it certainly accelerated the U.S.-Russia rivalry because it brought the United States and Russia closer than basically any time since the Cold War into direct military conflict. Putin, early on in the invasion, actually brandished nuclear threats. The Russian invasion of Ukraine led to a rapid alienation of China's ties with Europe, uh, sort of a remilitarization or at least a reprioritization on defense spending, uh, especially in Germany. Uh, it led to a acceleration in the China-Russia alignment. Hank, I know that you're well aware of the February 4th joint statement that Putin and Xi signed 20 days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the Chinese stuck to that. As a result of the China-Russia alignment, it accelerated the U.S.-China alienation, which of course we'll talk about in more detail. Uh, it accelerated the European alienation and mistrust with China, pushing European views about China much closer to the United States. Russia and China in reaction are now very actively reaching out to the global south, right? I mean, we're sort of back to the days of Mao Zedong's intermediate zone uh, that looks like a part of the world that the Chinese are looking to grow their influence in. The war precipitated major shift in global energy markets and, of course, inflation and price spikes in commodities and food shortages. So 
yeah, I see it as very significant. And I see these changes in global politics as enduring. You know, this is the world's never going to be the same again. And so many of the trends that we saw going on before have just been accentuated by this. And then there's a, a whole new dynamic with Russia. But I want to talk about, let's talk about Taiwan. So how do you see this flashpoint evolving in the short and the longer term? And uh, Evan, do we have the right policy here? Hank, I'm really worried about the Taiwan issue. The trajectory is very worrisome. And to be sure, even before the crisis, anxieties on all three sides, Washington, Beijing, and Taipei uh, were growing. But now after the Pelosi uh, visit, the Taiwan issue is at the front and center of the US-China relationship. Um, it's become militarized. And I worry that the Taiwan issue um, is rapidly going to become the central theater uh, over the long term uh, in the US-China competition and a central theater that's heavily militarized, perhaps like the Germany issue or the Germany question between the US and the Soviets during the Cold War because the Chinese are trying to use the Pelosi visit to create a new military status quo around Taiwan of persistent and consistent presence. And they're trying to erode some of the norms that have guided military operations around Taiwan, like respecting the center line in the strait and um, naval transits through the Taiwan Strait. And so what I worry is until Washington, Beijing, and Taipei figure out what a new status quo is, I worry that um, it, it will become, it will remain a military flashpoint. In terms of what the right policy is, basically my view is the US and Taiwan should say less and do more. We need to focus our policy actions more on the substance of improving Taiwan's defense and its national security over symbolic actions, because symbolic actions really don't protect Taiwan. They make the leaders and the people of Taiwan feel good for the short term. Um, I think the US government needs to avoid home goals, you know, um, policy actions that give the Chinese the impression we're moving away from one China. And I think we need to use this crisis to put, uh, to persuade Taiwan to get even more serious about its defense. Um, and I think the US needs to have conversations about the one, its one China policy what it is and what it is not. Because as important as it is for the White House and the State Department to reaffirm that our one China policy hasn't changed, um, that sounds like more of an assertion than an argument. And I think that there needs to be a private high-level conversation about what in China is and is not in order to persuade the Chinese that it's not changing over the long term. Because if, if Beijing comes to the view that it's one China is changing and Taiwan is drifting away. I worry that Beijing will come to the conclusion that it has to act sooner rather than later and um, you know, turn it into a flashpoint again. Final point on this, Hank, is let's remember that in 1995, 1996, the crisis played out over some 18 months. So you know, um, where we are today in Taiwan could be in a very, very different place. And like 95, 96, sort of coincidentally, right, we're entering into an election cycle in Taiwan. The next presidential election is in January of 2024, which means election politics in Taiwan 
2023 are going to be, you know, sort of in full effect. And I worry that political leaders in Taiwan as, you know, they engage in their political posturing will start to say things and do things that could uh, trigger another crisis. Some observers refer to the current U.S.-China dynamic as Cold War 2.0. But for a number of reasons, which you pointed out in some of the things you've written, given China's economic integration with the U.S. and much of the rest of the world, this is very different from the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. So how do you think about the current dynamic? I mean, Hank, this is one of these issues that if we're not careful, we get drawn into a parlor game. Is it a Cold War or not a Cold War, right? So in some sense, because the U.S.-China relationship is substantially different than the U.S.-Soviet relationship, everyone's reluctant to call it a Cold War. You know, the origin of the term Cold War is from George Orwell. He first coined the term in the, I think it's the mid-1940s, where he simply called it a peace that is no peace. So whether we call it a Cold War or not, I think the reality is that it is going to be a peace that is no peace. We've entered into a fundamentally different stage of the U.S.-China relationship. The way I think about it, Hank, competition is expanding, intensifying, and diversifying. Competition is full spectrum. It's on security, economics, technology, and increasingly ideology. The latter point is one that worries me. That broad spectrum competition is competition in those four areas. It's all linked and nested, right? Security competition has economic manifestations. Technology competition has security linkages, Etc. And so our ability to compartmentalize the relationship as a way to manage differences goes way down. And so that only intensifies the competition. Domestic politics are starting to play an outsized role in America's policy toward China and China's policy toward the United States, right? Look no further than Nancy Pelosi's recent visit. And then you have a variety of new dynamics that are emerging largely under Xi Jinping. The tolerance for risk and friction is going up. Both sides are comfortable using openly confrontational strategies. There's very little sustained cooperation and communication is way down, right? I mean, just last week or the week before, in the wake of Pelosi's trip, the Chinese canceled upwards of, what was it, eight or 10 dialogues with the United States. I think four of which were related to military and military communication. So all of those trends should be worrisome. All of those trends certainly classify the U.S.-China relationship as a Cold War, even if it's not the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. But of course, amid that, we have deep interdependence. And the thing about interdependence is that it's not just economic interdependence, right? That's an obvious point to make about the U.S.-China relationship. It's also technological interdependence, it's ecological interdependence, and because of the fact that we're both nuclear powers, there's an interdependence of strategic stability. And so whether we use the term Cold War or not, the fundamental challenge for the United States, as distinct from the U.S.-Soviet period, was how do we balance intensifying competition along those the lines I talked about with deep and su substantial economic interdependence. And as somebody that lives in Washington, there's a lot of focus, a lot of debate about the nature of the competition and how the US should respond. We also have to remember that the interdependence has to be taken into account. And the real conversations that we're gonna have are gonna be about the risks and costs associated with balancing the competition in the interdependence. 
Evan, as you've pointed out, what makes this so challenging is the relationship has become politicized. And uh, you've written about blurring the lines, right, between national security and economic. And now I would say they've almost been blurred to the point that we're looking at the relationship through the military lens, right? We're looking at the relationship and the military lens, there's no win-win, right? There's win-loss. That's what happens on the battlefield. And That's so right. that further complicates it. And so I believe it's going to be decided in the economic arena. As ideological as it is, I don't think it's going to be decided on ideology. It's going to be decided on which system can produce the results, right? So it's going to be the, the economic battlefield. A lot of that will be with technology, developing the technologies of the future. And we're not going to win that by just seeing how much we can sequester. And we have to sequester the high technologies for to protect our national security. But if we sequester too much, we lose because a lot of this is going to be who commercializes the technologies of the future and, and sets the standards globally. So it makes it very complicated. But I want to get to you as you were finishing up the answer to, to an earlier question. You talked about you know the deep economic relations between our two countries. And so I want to get to the decoupling. So we, we've just witnessed a very rapid decoupling between the West and Russia. Unprecedented speed and scope. Does this suggest that the U.S.-China decoupling could go further and faster than we all thought just a few months ago? So how do you look at that? Great question. And it's especially relevant now that, you know, the Chinese economy is facing pretty significant period of austerity and the U.S.-China competition in the wake of Pelosi's visit, U.S.-China tensions are rising. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the term decoupling, Hank, because it's too binary. The U.S.-China economic relationship is not an all or nothing proposition. So the process we're going through is really a question of relative economic disengagement or disaggregation. And what I see is both sides assessing their exposure, risk, and vulnerability to economic and national security threats and disaggregating as a result. And I think that that process is going to continue, right? Imagine if we had a major crisis over Taiwan, I think the pressures on American companies, global companies would grow even more. So I think this process is going to continue. When I talk with business leaders in the United States, more and more of them talk about not, not withdrawing from China 100%, but they talk about China plus one, China plus two, diversifying away from China. And so I think that that just simply an inevitable trend because exposure to China is carrying with it all sorts of of risks, supply chain risk, market access risk. For some American companies, there's a reputational risk associated with being you know, in business. Now that you have pieces of legislation like the Xinjiang Forced Labor Act, you really have to scrub your supply chain and make sure you're not sourcing from bad entities in Xinjiang. So I think that th this is a process that's going to continue but it's not going to be a wholesale decoupling. I, I don't think that's either feasible or frankly desirable. Yeah, you're totally right. And so that is, I think, the right point to end on because right now it's impossible. And if, if you had a wholesale decoupling, you'd be shutting down U.S. companies' businesses, not only in China, but in the U.S. It would be very difficult. I agree with you there. And I would like to now move to what's going on in China economically. As you look at that very carefully, you made a speech in 2017 at the Asia Society. 
where you said China had about five years to become a high-income country economy where they would likely be stuck in the middle-income track. It's been about five years, but they're running into a fair amount of difficulty in their economy right now. So what are the biggest headwinds you see? But first, tell us very briefly what this middle-income trap is, and then let's move into the Chinese economy as you see it today. Well, I'm, I'm no economist, Hank, so I have a very colloquial understanding of the middle-income trap, but it's, it's basically the idea that a country reaches a certain level of income. I think it's somewhere between 10000 to 12000 per capita. The World Bank standard for middle income to high income changes every year, but that they never move from middle income to high income because they don't make the economic reforms necessary to increase productivity in order to continue to grow, right? And so they basically get stuck. That's the idea. You know, the Chinese call it the Latin America trap. And, you know, China is right about at that threshold now. I, I didn't check this morning, but I think aggregate per capita income, I think is about, 12,000 US dollars. And notably, that's at market exchange rate, not PPP, purchasing power parity. And so China is there. And the question is, the big question is, um, how is China going to grow going forward? And that's a very relevant question, given the fact that China's second quarter growth was 0.4%, which means mathematically, they will not be able to meet their stated growth target for the year of 5.5%. That second quarter growth number sort of highlights to me a bigger strategy question, which is, what is China's strategy for growth going forward? Because when I look at Xi Jinping's or China's growth strategies, what I see is multiple and competing strategies. And I don't understand how you reconcile all of them in order to achieve the productivity advancements in order to continue to grow, right? So those multiple and competing strategies you know, goals are things like, of course, they, they want to generate some growth, right? But they talk about quality growth over quantity growth. Number two, they need to continue de-risking the financial system, which means reduce the accumulation of debt, which remains a substantial long-term barrier to growth. Number three, they need to rebalance their economy away from the old drivers of exports and investment to consumption and services. Xi Jinping has identified manufacturing upgrading and technology upgrading is a very, very high priority. That's his sort of key solution for improving productivity is relying on advanced technology and especially advanced manufacturing. Xi Jinping also wants to increase China's self-reliance, reduce its dependence on imports of key commodities and technologies. China also wants to reduce income inequality and accelerate decarbonization. And I just don't know how you do all those things. When it comes to the stated strategies, what we know is that Xi Jinping uh, wants to focus on the role of the state. He's been empowering state-owned enterprises. He's been leveraging state-directed development strategies like these development zones, Shang'an in the north, the Bay Area in the south around Guangdong and Hong Kong. Xi Jinping's actions in the last two years suggest a pretty deep skepticism, if not ambivalence, toward the private sector and private capital. You know, my impression is that he uses them but doesn't really trust them. And that's sort of all captured in this new idea that they call the new development concept. And then amid all that, and I'll end on this point, Hank, amid all that, 
what you see is politics and ideology moving to the forefront, right? Xi Jinping's insistent on continuing with zero COVID, which obviously has generated a lot of austerity in China. And there are big structural challenges like demographics that are hitting harder and faster, right? I mean, I've heard some demographers say that China's population growth will be negative this year for the first time uh, in decades. And there's some Chinese demographers that project that the Chinese population uh, may actually shrink to 700 million over the next decade. So the structural challenges to productivity and advancements and ultimately growth remain very unclear to me. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They're in a recession now. They've got some very serious short-term headwinds. You know, the, the whole real estate problem is 70% of the Chinese uh, net worth is tied up in real estate. And in the intermediate term, it's debt. You know, right now, debt's 250% of GDP and demographics. They've got their hands full. Let me ask you this, Hank. I mean, as you and I both know, one of the amazing things about the last 40 years of reform and opening is China's demise has been predicted before. And the Chinese always find a way to muddle through. And so the question is, is there something we're not seeing right now uh, that will allow them to muddle through what looks like, you know, a pretty dizzying array of cyclical and structural economic challenges? I believe all those that say China is so strong, they're going to eat our lunch no matter what are wrong. And all those that say, well, they're going to somehow either collapse or there's going to be a huge problem are wrong. So I think they've got very, very significant challenges. I, I think one of the biggest ones they have is one you alluded to, which is the role of the party in the companies, right? But I think all those that sort of think that they're not going to have some success here are wrong. I think it's very, very likely they're just big, sure numbers are going to be the biggest economy in the world before too long. I think we make a big mistake if we deny the permanence of China and the fact that they're going to be a significant economic competitor. They're the biggest trader in the world right now, right? The biggest manufacturing country. They're a leader in making all sorts of infrastructure. China's going to be here for a long time, but they've got serious problems. So the competition is going to be about which political system is able to get the results. It's going to be intense competition for capital, for jobs. You know, the Chinese are having a hard time finding the jobs for, for college-educated youth right now. And they're dealing with the same issue we're dealing with in terms of technology hollowing out the middle class. And, and so there's plenty of challenges. And they've got significant ones. I'd rather be playing our hand than theirs. So let's go, because you look at the political calendar like we all are in China. And this is a big event, the Party Congress this fall. What are your expectations for the party Congress? And what impact will the geopolitical turmoil and the significant economic slowdown in China have? Will it have an impact on the party Congress? Hank, when it comes to Chinese politics, I'm, all, I'm very humble and judicious about what we can know. I mean, I, uh, I don't know if you remember, but the year that I worked for you was during the 17th party Congress. Yeah. Right. That's when Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, you know, sort of first came to power, or I should say, you know, sort of first moved into the standing committee. Yeah. And and we were all debating. I remember sitting around with you talking about, OK, which one of these guys is going to become the top guy? And do we have any indications one 
sort of one way or the other. In, in my first trip, I irritated the State Department because I went to Guangzhou and met with Xi Jinping before I went to Beijing. But I want to just interrupt and say anybody that says they're a Chinese expert and they know what's going to happen politically in China is by definition not an expert. I always tell people I'm not an expert on China. I'm a specialist. I specialize in it. Hard, hard to be an expert. But that, that said, right, you, you got you to make some guesses. And so I would say, number one, she's gonna, Xi Jinping is going to get his third term. That looks like that's pretty well baked in. To me, the key question to watch at this party Congress is what is Xi Jinping's relative power going to be coming out of this? In other words, what are the power relationships among the top seven members of the Politburo Standing Committee, and of course, the 15-member the Politburo below them. And in particular, what's the relative balance of power between she and the people closely associated with him, and let's call them the technocrats and the pragmatists, the people that tend to put national interests over politics. And so while I'm of the view that Xi Jinping controls all of the major levers of power in that system, right, whether it's the organization bureau or the propaganda apparatus or internal security or the Chinese military, you know, the Chinese economy still has to grow and, and the needs of the Chinese people need to be met. And so, you know, there are a variety of things that I'll be watching, who becomes the premier, what age norms or rules hold for uh, succession, what happens to key Xi Jinping allies, right? People like Liu He, who of course you know quite well. But to be very specific, Hank, there's very likely to be a big turnover in two groups in China. Number one is the economic leadership. I already talked about the premier, but you're going to have Liu He re retire, perhaps Guo Xuqing. There are rumors that Yigang, the central banker. So, you know, that trifecta of Liu He, Guo Xuqing, and Yigang, I think have been very important in managing broader economic policy, but especially financial sector reform and de-risking. And if that team you know, goes away, I think that could very substantially change the trajectory of the Chinese economy, or there may also be a very substantial turnover among diplomatic leadership, the people that negotiate China's relationship with the world. Yang Jiechir, and Wang Yi, Xi Jinping's two top diplomats, if the age rule or the age norm holds, uh, are very likely to retire. And so we're going to have two new people leading China's interaction with the rest of the world. So I see this party Congress, as strong as she is, uh, as still very consequential for understanding China's future. You know, when you look at the party, if you look at the Central Committee, there's going to be maybe 65% of the people are going to turn over if they're age limited. And so that's going to be really important. Now let's zoom out to the broader Indo-Pacific. So how do you assess America's economic and diplomatic engagement in this region now? Well, I think the Biden team is due a lot of credit for their, their very quick, their very strong and effective repair of a lot of the damage caused during the Trump years, right? Repairing American alliances, building new structures, uh, enhancing U.S. engagement in a very credible way. And I think the U.S. has done that, probably had greater success in Northeast Asia than Southeast Asia. But I mean, look, we're two years into the uh, Biden administration, and I think the, the U.S. position uh, in the Asia Pacific is much stronger uh, than it was five years ago. Uh, in particular, there's greater alignment on China and how to manage the China challenge and how to engage 
in strategic competition with China, certainly among the United States, Australia, Japan, South Korea. I think the U.S. has played an important, careful, quiet behind-the-scenes role at encouraging reconciliation between Japan and Korea, which is very important for our strategic position. I think the major weakness of Biden's Indo-Pacific strategy, and the administration would admit this, is their weak economic agenda. They don't really have much of an economic agenda, right? That's no surprise. Um, it's largely because we have no trade agenda. You know, they're trying with the Indo-Pacific economic framework, but it's a complicated piece of a business. It's asking countries to pay all the costs without offering any of the benefits. It's going to take time to negotiate this. So I think that overall, our position in the region is better. Uh, and the Biden team uh, is due a lot of credit for their substantial and quick repair. But absent an economic agenda, there's just an inherent limit to the gains that can be achieved. You see it exactly the same way I do. If you have a worker-centered trade policy, which means you're working to close markets rather than open them up, it's pretty hard to lead economically. And I think just more broadly, you know, that they've done such good work and particularly putting together alliances, you know, and sanctions to respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and rebuilding NATO. But in the aftermath, they're going to have to say, are we going to have a positive economic agenda, right? Because China will have one and we're going to need to have one. One of the experiences that I came away from my time at the NSC with was as important as having priorities and executing them are, that at some level, U.S. policy uh, is a function of the domestic politics, the leaders yeah, that you have really. to deal with, yeah. right? And so the, the Biden team, as I said, has a good strategy they've made. Um, They've got a lot of quick wins, et cetera. They've also benefited from, they've got good leaders in Japan, Korea, and Australia. Uh, in Southeast Asia, it's a very mixed bag. You know, when you have, um, you know, political leaders in Malaysia and Thailand, you know, Myanmar, um, that are just so focused on um, their own domestic politics, their own domestic economic challenges, there's just inherent limits to how much you're going to be able to do with them. And, you know, that was, th that was a, an aspect of U.S. policy I, I really didn't appreciate until I was in the job, that, that there are just inherent limits to what you're going to be able to do because of who you're, who you're dealing with. And if you've got a good leader whose vision is synced up with the United States. So the Philippines, to me, is a great example, right? In the Obama administration, we made great strides with the Aquino administration. We negotiated this great sort of quasi-base access agreement. And then, of course, Duterte comes in and blows the whole thing up. One thing I learned during my days at Treasury, particularly during the financial crisis, it's a lot easier for people sitting on the outside, you know, to throw spitballs. If you're not there, they don't know what you know. And, and there are real limitations. And there's nothing worse than feeling like you've got great authority and responsibility without having the tools you need. You have to deal with the hand you're dealt. So in terms of China, what are they getting wrong when it comes to U.S.-China policy and the strengths and weaknesses of their approach? So how, how do you look at this? So I think Biden's China policy, frankly, gets a, gets a bad rap. You know, Fareed Zakaria writes op-eds and on his show, he says that Biden's policy is basically just Trump's policy warmed over. And I just think it's, it's unfair because I think that the Biden team pretty early on jettisoned some of the most destructive and provocative aspects of Trump's China policy. Number one, they said, we're not gonna pursue regime change. Number two, they said, we're not gonna demonize China. Number three, they said, we're interested in dialogue. 
whereas Trump wasn't really interested in dialogue. They said, we think cooperation is important, but it has to be, of course, mutually beneficial and meaningful. And Tony Blinken in his China policy speech was, I thought, very detailed. And then, of course, China policy is not just what you do with China, it's what you do around China. And the Trump team alienated allies. They withdrew from TPP and generally created a strategic environment in Asia uh, in which there was a lot of skepticism about the United States. And I think Biden turned all of those on its head. So I agree that there are similarities between Biden's China policy and Trump's China policy, but the differences to me far outweigh the similarities because they are on big, important, strategic things. And then, you know, when Biden came in and he articulated a China strategy, he was pretty clear. He said, look, we're going to invest at home and that's going to take time and it's going to require some tough legislative battles. But I think two years in, especially if you look at the legislative achievements of this summer, I think they are substantial and worthy of uh, admiration. Number two, Biden said, we're going to rebuild with allies and that's allies in Asia and in Europe. And he's done that. And frankly, the Chinese have made it easy, easy for Biden to do that. First with their alignment with Russia before the invasion of Ukraine. And now after the, you know, Chinese provocative destabilizing military exercises around Taiwan. And number three, the Biden team said, we're going to reinvest in multilateral organizations to prove that we believe in international cooperation, you know, a rules-based system. And, and they did that, you know, but their weaknesses too. I think their handling of tariffs has been a big, you know, a big mess. I think that they've downplayed cooperation with China in ways that suggest that they're not as interested as they could be. But probably my biggest critique would be the loose management of Taiwan policy, right? I think Taiwan policy, you know, as a former policymaker, Taiwan policy is one of those issues that you always have to keep two hands on the steering wheel, right? It's a difficult, complicated piece of business, and you simply can never let it drop off your list of priorities. And unfortunately, we're at a point where the Chinese have the impression, rightly or wrongly, that we're moving from our one China policy to something that looks and sounds like one China, one Taiwan. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that's why, you know, Pelosi's trip uh, resulted in this sort of, you know, outsized reaction that it did, you know, is because it occurred in the context of the Chinese believing we're trying to, you know, move away from, from one China. And probably more broadly, you would like to see less inflammatory rhetoric in general on, on China coming from the U.S. In my general view on, on China is talk less and do more. Now, Evan, this has been a terrific interview, and I'd like to end with something directed to young people. So you're a professor at Georgetown. You spend a lot of time with students. What advice would you give them for how to navigate their lives and careers in the rapidly changing world that we've been discussing? So what advice do you give young people today? I've got four pieces of advice that I regularly uh, give my students. Number one is in your career, focus on developing skills and developing knowledge. The combination of good skills, thinking, reading, writing, presentation, persuasion, is essential to being effective in any context. And try and develop some knowledge. You know, find something that you're passionate about and learn about it. Number two, 
focus on what you want to do versus what you should do. I talk to an enormous number of students who are making decisions about what classes to take or what internships to apply for or what jobs to take based on what they think they should do versus what they want to do. And in my career, the things that I have always been the most rewarding for me immediately and over the long term have been when I've done things that I want to do versus what I should do. I mean, I can tell you, Hank, in I think it was 95 or 96, when I, when I told my peers I was going to go and get a master's degree in China studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, when all of them were going to McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, et cetera, in 1995 or 96, they all thought I was crazy, right? But it was something I was passionate about. I really thought it was going to be important. And this is what I wanted to focus my career on. So number three, don't let choices paralyze you. I have a lot of students that come to me that they just have a lot of choices. Um, and, um, and sometimes they have so many choices, they don't know how to choose. And what I try to tell them is it, you, you need to make some choices because not choosing is a choice in and of itself. And sometimes learning what you don't want to do or what you don't like to do is just as important as learning what you want to do. And finally, you can never go wrong in this day and age of a you know, hyper-globalized labor market in having specific expertise, right? And as a young person, it's always good to prove you have specific expertise on an issue and broaden from there, whether you're working at an investment bank or a think tank or a consultancy, right? Your bosses will always go to the person that has the best knowledge and can um, give them the best answers. So start there. Absolutely. Evan, a terrific interview. Great advice. You've given our listeners a lot to think about. Thanks a lot. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.